Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1982. And Paul, what is best in life? To crush my podcast enemies and hear their lamentations on the Discord. The movie? Conan the Barbarian. everyone and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear. and amy this is the show where you and i are looking at classic films we're trying to figure out are they as good as people say they are i mean are they just meme worthy do we remember them as being these classics that actually don't hold up we are going through a library of different genres and really trying to find the hundred best films and when we do we're going to send them up into space. We're going to have Arnold Schwarzenegger kick a uh, a small little zip drive into space, and then forever <laughs> it will live there. He shall punch them like he punches a camel in this movie. <laughs> I like a good camel punch. Um, that seems like it's a dirty phrase, but it's not. It Maybe really it is. did. I, I blinked like, oh man, what does that mean? <laughs> Before we get into Conan, I do want to talk about last week's episode, which was our Shrek episode. And there was one thing that came out of that episode that was so crystal clear, which is people love the Emperor's New Groove. And both of us, I think, inadvertently shit on that movie. Did you do it on purpose? I did mine on accident. I did mine on accident, too, because I was kind of lumping in with this era of Disney where they seemed a little lost, which went on for a while, I would say. You know, kind of late, late 90s, early 2000s. I put it in as part of that, but I will admit to some bias. I At that time, I felt too old to watch that movie, and I actually never have. Same here. I actually uh, was talking about this online, that in my peer group, Emperor's New Groove, the poster, the trailer, all just felt like, Boo, Disney. Now, to your point, this was a low point in the Disney canon, but this movie is one of those weird films like Shrek that 
was supposed to be something bigger and different, and it became something weirder and something that people truly love, like almost more in the Looney Tunes realm than a Disney film. There has been a lot of people uh, sticking up for it. Emperor's New Groove, making me feel like maybe, maybe it's got a good groove. Maybe we should check it out sometime. I mean, it sounds weird to be like, we're looking for the 100 greatest movies of all time, and it must include a look at The Emperor's New Groove. But well, look, we're I looking at Conan and, and Shrek, too. I don't want to be a snob. We are looking at Conan and Shrek. We cannot oh, Shrek turn our nose. competed for the Palm d'Or. I know. So many people upset that we even talked about Shrek, but I did love it our conversation. For the Palm d'Or. I know, I know. And someone's like, well, Brown Bunny did too. Well, but yeah, but honestly, I do believe that a good movie, a bad movie, a critically complicated film, like someone was talking about, well, Crash won the Academy Award. Do we talk about that movie? I think it is worthy about. We should at least talk about it. We should figure out why it mattered when it mattered. That's the best part of watching films, figuring out why did they hit when they hit? Yeah. Why did they have straight accords? that are timeless and certain movies that are for a time. And I think that we can live in that world. Now, I will say, though, you and I got on this big tangent fighting over, like, do they make movies for kids, just kids anymore? Is everything having to be, like, synergized so that kids and adults can watch a movie together? Is that watering down what a kid's movie can be and watering down what adults have to sit through? I still believe in what I said. However, um, I did have a nice Saturday morning this weekend I had a big bowl of cereal and I decided to put on some old Looney Tunes cartoons. And one of and in one of the cartoons, they made a joke about Bing Crosby's racehorse. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. I guess the old Looney Tunes did that, did the same thing. Oh, you don't know about Bing Crosby's racehorse? Oh, well, I'll tell you off air. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, that's a pretty hard joke. I don't agree with it. Um, you know, I do want to just dig into one thing because I do feel like One of the things I didn't really ask you, and I think it is a little bit unfair, is what do you consider kids? Because you said, well, Batman is too dark for kids. And I saw your review for the the new Harry Potter Forbidden Beasts, whatever that movie is. Secrets of Dumbledore. Yes. And you also said, oh, it's a kid's movie. Now, I wouldn't classify those as kids movies like because there is an audience for my little pony there is an audience for twilight and there is an audience for batman and i think that they can all focus because really movie theater experiences are for like that 12 to 24 crowd i think in that air you know that age group you know so i just wanted to get what you think kids movies are because there is a difference i would put a kids movie in a category where it's made for like six to 14. That's okay. What I'm going to say to you is that does not exist. Like six through 14. I like in my, in my estimation, you are going to be stopping around 10, six to 10 would be one area. And then I think, Oh, what about absolutely. something like Home Alone? Home Alone feels well, like a no, 6 but to I'm, 14. I, I'm talking about like, but if you can't say like My Little Pony is good for 6 to 14, like My Little Pony is probably good for like 3 to 8. You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> that, then that, this is, I think, part of our disagreement because I know from having a 5-year-old and a 7-year-old, my 5-year-old loves things that my 7-year-old is like, oh, never again. Now, they do agree on movies like Home Alone, uh, and they also agree on certain Pixar films, but there are Pixar movies that my five-year-old loves, and my seven-year-old is like, that's baby stuff. So I do think there's a lot more 
of a a wide swath of what you can consider even kids' movies. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I would add to it and say that if you would then specify My Little Pony movie as being from three to eight, which I would actually say is a little is a little young. This is also coming from a girl who played with My Little Ponies for a very long time. Sure. Um, it still makes it weirder that the My Little Pony movie is all about Trump. That's still which weird. That a is lot still of people did really not get weird. People were saying they did not get that. They from the new they, one. Yeah, they That's said it was. What it is. Oh, these people don't like unicorns because they're unicorns, and these people don't like Pegasus because they're Pegasus, and a nation's divided in the horse land. Just, and there's like there's literally like a fascist pony instituting chaos to divide people. I mean, I I saw a lot of people rebuking that reading, but I do love that reading, and I guess. I Have guess they I even am... seen this My Little Pony movie? Not the first <laughs> well, one. They did. The they did. No, one. they they knew what you were talking about. And I will just say, to my point, if I can just clarify something, there's a difference, and I think I'm trying to reach this point, which is, when I was growing up, I think there were a lot more films in the PG category that appealed to the entire family. Like... A parent wasn't upset to go see E.T. A parent wasn't upset to go see Raiders. Like, these are PG films that as a kid you could enjoy and as an adult you could enjoy. Right. But uh, what yeah. I'm saying is, like, the Harry Potter franchise, now extended to the Fantastic Beast world, which I don't think they ever should have bothered doing, but because it exists, this is a franchise based on books written for kids. The first movies all star kids. Yeah, and but, now we've gotten to the point where the new Fantastic Beast. I looked; none of the leads are under thirty, except for Ezra Miller, who is twenty nine and a half. It is so geared towards but, old people when it was based on kids. It's because as the fans wait, of the original wait, books have not, aged, yes. as the fans they've aged the movies, but still. That, I feel like that's taking something away from like the youthful audience that no, this kind of series because, was intended to. Well, I mean, because, if you're 12, what do you get out of go seeing a Fantastic Beast movie? What do you get out of seeing a three-hour Batman movie? You're not ready Batman for it, movie? but you're not, you're not, those, you're not, you're not going to go see Batman at 12. But we've taken those franchises away from children and just like given them to adults because like, I don't know why. Why can't, I, why, why can't kids have their own stuff? I, 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 this argument that kids can't have their own stuff, I think is just incredibly flawed because kids do have their own stuff like they do like but you like Harry Potter was a book the first book was a kid's book right and as each chapter came out you were growing up with Harry Potter so by the time you got to the end the books are thicker they are heavier there's more weight in each one of them and that's the way the movies came out. So I do believe, like, I have a five-year-old, the one of the closest friends of my five-year-old, uh, just watched Harry Potter, the first one. He's not ready to watch the next ones yet, but he will get there. Like, that's the arc of Harry Potter. Like, and Fantastic Beasts, I'm not ultimately worried about that because the story that they wrote is about Harry Potter and this is the connection to it. And all those kids who grew up reading those books were growing old with Harry. So they were out of high school when Harry Potter ends the book. And I think that that actually is one of the coolest things in literature. And I'm not talking about JK. I'm not getting to that. But I'm saying as far as a book that grows with you, that's really cool. They shouldn't just keep on making kid movies. That would be really... I just think it would suck. But like, what you want to just keep on seeing like five-year-olds run around? Like, or do you want to grow the franchise with the people who are the fans of the franchise? I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I think this cuts both ways. I feel like there's just this like clinging to childhood franchises in adult movies that I find really wearying. I mean, I'm so tired of like 
most of the movies that are presented, people having to whine that like it it ruined their childhood in one way or another. It feels like the movies have just gotten, they're too immature for adults and too grown up and boring and about Trumpism for kids. And it just feels like they're made for everybody, but nobody. And I think it's a real problem. I think it's a gigantic sweeping generalization. As someone That's what who, I'm good at. I, I know, but sweeping. as someone who has a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, I can tell you, at least from their eyes and my eyes, the the amount of films that are out there for them and media and content for them is, I think, at really a very good level. Like, if you're talking about TV shows like Bluey, uh, like... That are, I think, incredibly funny. I called it the catastrophe with uh, oh, the Australian hold up, hold up, catastrophe. Hold up. We are not talking about TV shows. We are well, a I'm movie just, podcast. I'm, I'm a movie okay, critic. I know, I'm but I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just talking about what is out there for kids, right? There are so many choices for them that are good. We could talk about everything that's being put out on Disney+. Plus. Uh, in the feature world, you can have all the superhero movies. You can have the Star Wars movies. And there is a tremendous amount of kid content out there that has multiple ages. Like my kid's never seen a superhero movie. He's uh, seven years old and I'm holding off on Shazam because I think that's maybe the best one to introduce him to because I feel like that's a lot, but people are like, it's a little scary. So I have to hold him back until he gets ready for that. But, but when he gets ready, he's going to feel cool that he saw that one. You know, you have to like, I think as a parent also understand what your kids are watching. And I think there's a, absentee parent mentality of, and I've seen it with parents that I go to school with uh, or my kids go to school with, where they're just like, oh, it looks like a kid's movie. We're sending them to the kid's movie. Like, and that is bad. That's bad parenting. I want to know what they're seeing and how and what they're going to be exposed to because there are things like I would expose my kid to E.T. and that movie Pete's Dragon that David Lowry did and it broke their heart and it was so emotional and so beautiful. And but I'm watching it with them so I can answer their questions and be there with them the same way that my parents were there with me. But then there are other movies where I'm like, go watch Turning Red. I don't need to be next to you. I, I get what Turning Red is. I get where you're, the adventure. So I think that there are these things. Like There's a lot of options for kids and a lot of good, very, very good options is all I'm saying. And I think that kids is a giant, like, I think and under 10, we can say it like that. Under 10 is one group. 10 and above is another group. And then 18 and above is another group. But I think that they all are you know, very, very different. Well, I still think that older people need to get their mitts off of what should be children's entertainment. Well, who's making it then? Who's making it? It's not adults. The older people are making it. The older people are making boring Batman movies. You uh, Well, this is also your own issue with Batman that you are like, Batman is like, when has Batman, the feature films ever been for kids? Never. Tim Burton's Batman. That was totally for kids. Amy, you are insane. It was not a kid's movie. It is not a kid's kids movie. movie. That is not that is a, a kid's movie. Per- You're telling me kids didn't go watch that movie in droves? They absolutely I'm telling did. you that you as a teenager or as a young like teen saw that. And that's I what Batman is for. I was a teenager when I saw that. I, how old do you think I am? I I, I'm just saying that Batman was, Batman is not a kid's movie. Like that is, Batman that is a wild statement. It's completely a kid's movie. I don't know what you're talking about. I okay. feel like kids saw that movie in droves. Every kid I knew had a Batman shirt. To say that Batman is not a kid's movie, that's bewildering. Okay. I can't, I can't, I, what can I say more than uh, I don't agree with you that it was a, like, but I think you're using kids too liberally. That's what I really want to get down to. Like, yes, it was for, like, it wasn't for a five-year-old, an eight-year-old, 
you know, I, I think it was a movie like, yes, it could be for a 10, 12 year old. Like, sure, it's has elements that and again, people are and now even our people behind the scenes are all talking about is it kid friendly? Is it not kid friendly? It also goes to what parents are going to show you. I watched, I had kids, friends of mine that were watching Rambo at a certain age. That's not a kid's movie, but every kid was watching it. Uh, I, I saw Risky Business way too young. It's not a kid's movie, even though it showed a kid home from school. You know, uh, you know, so I think that they're like, you know, uh, you know, there is, I think there's a lot of variation I, here. My point was that I feel like people, even when they make kids movies nowadays, yes. Make them so that the adults sitting next to their kids will be entertained. And so I Tim Burton feel did like, not. So do you think Tim Burton made a kids movie and didn't and just tried to entertain kids, or do you think Tim Burton made a Tim Burton movie that entertained kids and adults, or do you think that Steven Spielberg made I Raiders think, to entertain kids? I think they both made great movies that appealed to both kids and adults. But I I find it really irritating that like movies, especially in a post Shrek era, have to include like jokes that the, that the adults really definitely get to make them laugh. I guess, I guess. You talk about Sonic 2 in such glowing terms. Sonic 2 does that in spades. I thought Sonic 2 was great, but it, it is full of now jokes. Well, yeah. I mean, the I pointed out in my review that I was sort of like, really a limp biscuit joke? That doesn't make any sense for the kids. But like, I thought it had a kid energy. I just... Sonic, but has, you, you Sonic could argue, has a kid energy. The new but Batman you could does argue, not have a kid energy. The you original argue, Batman though, who is does Sonic have a kid for? energy. Is Sonic something that kids right now are playing in video games? I would have no idea. No, they're not. But it's a old, it's an adult, it's it's parents going, oh, I love Sonic as, as, a, as a kid. Come see it. Like, there are Sonic, like Sonic is in a lot of Nintendo Switch games and he's around, but he's not like a super popular character. I think it's based on the parents going, I love Sonic. Let's bring him in. And I think one of the things that's so successful about this franchise and the screenwriting in it is those writers actually embrace everything that we love of Sonic and also make it incredibly uh, accessible for the kids too. Well, yes, but they're also trying to get the kids interested to like, Buy new Sonic games if they come up with them. So it's it's all a circle. It's a spinning blue hedgehog-like circle. We are so sidetracked from talking uh, sorry, about Conan uh, the Barbarian. But is, oh, well, here's my question. Is Conan a kid's movie? That will be something that we'll have to talk about through this episode because I saw it as a kid. Is it a kid's movie? I mean, it definitely was on all the time when I was growing up. And, and look how think great it turned out. My I favorite turned out person to talk about movies. Uh, no, but I think I, I, this is uh, good. And sorry to, to waylay this episode down. This is not since Fargo have we gotten into the weeds. <laughs> but I, uh, I think there's a lot of variation is all I'm saying. And I look forward to, I hear what your complaint is. I also say that we shouldn't be afraid of PG movies that work on both levels. And I would say that that is Batman. That is Raiders. That is Empire. That is E.T. I think Steven Spielberg is the king of that. Um, or was the yes. king of that. And, but all and of I those think movies that, you're citing are so old and we're not doing it very well today. I, I agree with that. And I think that like that's why we have to look to movies like Into the Spider-Verse. I think that Lord Miller arguably have taken that mantle without even really fully advertising it. Between Spider-Verse and Mitchell's and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, they are... Oh, I love Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. They are, they are really pushing that forward. Anyway... We could debate it all and all and all, and people will still be mad at us in every... Swords at dawn, you and me. No, I love it all. I think it's great. And let's talk about this kid's movie, (laughs) Conan the Barbarian. Can it be a kid's movie with this many titties? You know what I'm wondering is if I'm getting Conan the Barbarian confused with Conan the Destroyer, because I definitely saw Red Sonja in the theater, and that seemed like the 
easiest one for kids. But I'm wondering if the second one was a little bit lighter. And this one has a lot more of the, uh, not problematic, but a lot more of the adult themes. I wonder, because I feel like the other two definitely blend together as like things that were on TV when I was walking through the living room. But I, I yes. would not say I know how to tell. This is Channel part. 11 all day and all yeah. night. This and Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Oh, Every time movie. my parents put me down in the basement while they were having dinner, I'm watching one of these and gung ho with Michael Keaton. Anyway, your parents Amy, made you eat in the basement. Well, like they would have their dinner and then I would be like not wanting to sit at the table and they would go downstairs, watch TV. You pop on the TV and then, you know, whatever, whatever WPIX had on, I was watching. Um, all right, Amy. So in the immortal words of Conan. Unspool ah, it! <laughs> the year is 1982. Jennifer and Jessica are tied for the most popular baby name. All the cool kids are playing, Mrs. Pac-Man, breakdancing, doing the moonwalk, and sweating to Jane Fonda's workout tapes. Tron is snubbed at the Oscars for best visual effects because the Academy considers computer-generated visuals to be cheating. <gasps> Isn't that crazy? Uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year is, and I think we've talked about this before, the computer. Notable firsts include the CD player. Artificial Heart Transplants, The Weather Channel, USA Today, and Late Night with David Letterman. If we're talking about unspooled films that came out this year, there's a bunch. There's uh, Sophie's Choice, E.T., Tootsie, Blade Runner, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, The Thing, and now Conan the Barbarian. Now, Amy, if you can, tell us who's in it, what's it about, and I do want to know what was on the radio. I accept your challenge. Conan the Barbarian. It is written by Oliver Stone. Yes, that Oliver Stone. This is not just some dumb movie. This movie has some pedigree to it. Uh, Oliver Stone could not convince the producers, um, he could not convince Dino De Laurentiis in, in particular, to also hire him to direct Conan as his filmmaking debut. That would have to wait. Instead, the director's chair for Conan went to John Milius, who you and I got into a lot on our early, early episode about Apocalypse Now. Just as a quick recap, Milius, he was this kind of posturing, combat-loving guy who did not serve in Vietnam. Stone did. He did not because he had asthma. Uh, we got into Apocalypse Now that he's like he became the inspiration for John Goodman in The Big Lebowski. Uh, he was a big deal when this film came out. People were paying attention to what he was up to. It was This was a Milius production is kind of how people thought of it at the time. But today, this film is much better known for launching a movie superstar, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, as Conan, plays this figure who sees his parents married by the evil snake priest played by James Earl Jones. He's forced into slavery. He wins his freedom as a gladiator. And then he sets out to get his revenge alongside his best buddies. You have Jerry Lopez as Subotai and Sandhel Bergman as Valeria. Along the way, he meets witches. He dies and gets resurrected. And he cuts off a lot of people's heads. Take a listen. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And unto this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Conan the Barbarian was released on May 14th, 1982, and it was a 
pretty decent hit. Enough of a hit that they went on to make two other lesser Conan movies, the movies you and I were just talking about. Uh, they got Arnold cast in The Terminator. And then after the third movie, uh, he was just, Arnie was just released from his five film contract. They were like, okay, we don't need to make any more of these. And we know what happened. He went on to become literally the biggest movie star, like literally the biggest, biggest of his day and eventually governor. And now some sort of Twitter moral authority. This really launched a path, man. Um, what was in the zeitgeist? Well, actually, the people in the zeitgeist were really into hearing some sort of gigantic historical epic that takes place on a larger-than-life scale. Because if you turned on the radio the week of May 14th, 1982, and you heard the number one song, it is a movie theme song that we have actually talked about. Another movie from 1982 uh, that we have talked about before on this podcast. You know what? I'm not even going to say the name. I'm not even going to say the song. I'm just going to start playing it, and you scream the answer when you know. Great song, terrible movie. <laughs> uh, wow, wow, wow. Never want to see that movie again. But 1982, cool year for film. And it's amazing that a movie like this could be a hit. Because when I was watching it, and I realized we were just talking about this idea that I don't even know which Conan is which Conan. Like I was kind of expecting uh, Grace Jones to pop up, but I think that might be in the second one. Yeah, it's um, the second one. You know, there is this energy here that this feels like an American Kung Fu film, right? There's something about it that uh, there's a shooting style to it. Like the Kung Fu films that I grew up watching, like those ones that played on TV, there's this very down and dirty quality to it. You know, this the fight scenes, uh, the gore that I find it incredibly endearing and really fun because it just is unapologetic in what it is. Yeah, this movie to me feels like if you took one of those silent epics, like a Cecil B. DeMille film or something, and then you just got to make it in a post-New Hollywood era where you could have tits, like it's it's like a blend of old and new. Because this movie, honestly, it's basically a silent movie, I think, yeah. for much of it. There's some narration at the beginning, you know, some sort of setting up of like, who is this guy? You have a few conversations, like right at the beginning when his dad is telling him, you cannot trust anything in this world but steel. The gods forgot the secret of steel and left it on the battlefield. And we who found it are just men. Not gods, not giants, just men. And the secret of steel has always carried with it a mystery. And from then on, perhaps in part the deference to Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose English was not great at this point in his life, even though he was a, he had like a dialect coach, uh, there's just not a ton of talking. This is like a kind of sort of silent epic where people move and they act and they react. And he plays this to Arnold's credit, I think with this kind of almost animalistic energy. He's like, okay, I'm not going to talk a lot. This is like a still quiet, but loud in its violence movie. And I will play this with like all of this craziness in my eyes and like this passion and this burningness and this like death that will come over me. Like he plays this like a silent hero. You're so right. There was a point in the film that I just pulled up the Wikipedia page to kind of look around and see what was uh, what was up. And I was like, oh, there's so much information about the plot here that I'm not seeing on screen. It definitely isn't telling you all the little details. It's it's going to just get you from place to place to place. It is bare bones. But in a way, that simplicity makes it way more interesting because 
You don't have to hear these long scenes where Schwarzenegger is giving an exposition dump or we really understand. We get it. It's it's vengeance. It is honor and it is adventure. It is a swashbuckling film. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think so much of the story is just carried in this performance. Like the scene that I've been thinking about nonstop since we watched Conan for this is when he becomes a gladiator, right? Because he goes through this progression. He's kidnapped. He's put on that like wheel of pain or wheel of torture. What do you even mm-hmm. call that? Like kind of wheel that lot, he's pushing oh, around and around. Yeah, there's and a lot of there's a lot of uh, weird torture devices. Whether it's a tree or a wheel, I like that wheel. I see. Like I feel like. I mean, that wheel, like, I'm going to say, it just looks painful to me. I, like, it looks like I don't even understand what the wheel is supposed to be doing besides just creating pain. Like, yeah. is it, does it have a larger, is it like tilling the soil? I don't know. Like, what What is it powering? Yeah, the movie never says, but I read actually that they made that, that wheel so it was fully functional to ground wheat as though that was okay. what he was doing with it. But it, it tells you I so much of a story. I thought it was like an old story. school Peloton. I mean, you kind know, of like... like it's inspired, actually, Milius came up with the idea, like, it's not from the Conan novels. Uh, Milius came up with that idea because, like, he knew that Ronald Reagan did this thing every morning called the Wheel of Pain. It's kind of, you know, like those... Wait, uh like until how old? No, he was doing it as he was president. What's like, the Wheel of Pain that Ronald Reagan did? Um, it's like, it. They, they still have them today in gyms. It's kind of like a like a... Like a little tire with like handlebars on it. Oh yeah, that's called the wheel like, of pain. I thought that was like an ab roller. Well, that's how he called it. I guess okay. like he said, Reagan did thirty of those every day, and that was like 30. his only exercise. That's nothing. So he like used that as like the inspiration to come up with the wheel of pain here, even though it's like a very different, very different workout style. But I did think that was funny because like I associate Reagan as the president who promoted fitness and then Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of teaming up with the presidency to promote fitness. This is the idea that they're both united by this wheel of pain. I find really interesting, (laughs) but I mean, even the wheel of pain storytelling, like this is done pretty much silently. You just hear this like wheel music as you watch him just become this like bored man with all this pent up energy from pushing the wheel. I love the storytelling in something like that, where you watch as he's like a kid pushing it with a bunch of people to like a teen pushing it with some other people to just like this man who's become so strong, he pushes it by himself. We should talk about like the music by Basil Polidorus because you hear the storytelling even in this music. It's like kind of going around and around and it keeps rebuilding and then it builds this crescendo only when you see Arnold's face for the very first time. doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And 
I love this about the movie because I know you said it was written by Oliver Stone, but I also know that Milius kind of threw away most of his script and really focused on making this an opera, you know, and it was his goal to make it with little or no dialogue. So to do that, he needed to really work with Polidorus to create music that not only scored the film, but had these emotional tones to each one of the scenes. Like it, it really, it gives you, I think when you have a story like this, it, it imbues each moment with something more than I think even dialogue could do, because we are talking about this big, you know, fantasy epic. And if you really start to pick it apart or get into the dialogue of it, I think it's going to fall apart and feel weak. And instead, you know, I think it kind of captures the look that you feel when you look at like, uh, is it a Frank Fazetta uh, yeah. portraits like those? It, it it feels majestic. It feels like there it is opera. This is our our Greek myth, you know, like it, it feels these are powerful creatures that are going through the land. I don't know. There's a, there's something to it, like where these French horns are giving this intonation and this pounding of drums. You know, it just gives this whole entire production this energy. I mean, it is a character. I, I know it's lame to say, but it is a full I mean, it is doing all the heavy lifting. Yeah, they like strip it back until it's so bare bones that it feels more like an epic. I mean, it's showing like the complete opposite of it. Like this isn't even the first time that Arnold Schwarzenegger has played some sort of larger than life mythical creature. Like one of his first movies that he filmed in 1969, you know, 12 years before this, when he was a real baby, giant baby, giant muscle bound workout baby. He did a movie called Hercules in New York. Uh, Which we covered on How Did This Get Made. I'm very, very familiar. (laughs) Of course you did. But like, that's a movie where there's just so much talking that he seems kind of puny and ridiculous by comparison. Here's a clip from Hercules in New York where like in the scene, he's walking down the street. He sees a poster for another Hercules movie and he's very offended by this. That is not Hercules. And who is that monster who looks as if he has come straight from the kingdom of the underworld? Oh, no, this is a motion picture, a play. Really, you mustn't take yourself so seriously. He doesn't even look like me. Look. What are you doing? Oh, wow. (laughs) Does he? I I really, I I really wish you'd put your shirt back on. You see, he isn't supposed to look like anyone except the actor who plays the part. But yeah, like that's that's too much talking. You don't want Arnold to be doing this much talking at this point in his No, I mean, in many respects, he is or looks at this point like a god. We are not used to our movie stars looking like him. He is Mr. Universe, right? Yeah, five times Mr. Universe. And I think now we're seeing everybody is built and everyone's working out and even the scrawny guys are looking pretty tough. They're too big. I mean, I think they're too big. I think everybody's gotten too big. One of my favorite moments in Sonic 2, and, and again, I like Sonic 2 a lot, but they're kind of positioning James Marsden as being like the nerd against this other group of like macho men. And they're playing volleyball and the other team scores and they're all muscle bound. And James Marsden is being like shit on as like, oh, you're just the nerdy guy. And he like flexes. And when he flexes, you see full on muscle and pec movement. I'm like, he's not (laughs) he's not that you can't do that joke. But anyway, to go back to Conan, it's like he is like you can 
only make an opera for someone like him. And I do believe that the music that goes on with most of his movies is iconic. The Terminator yeah. mu- music, the like he has, like he is a walking theme. Like if yeah. you can get those drums to match his footsteps, he becomes even more powerful. Yeah, you. It's you're right. I love actually the way of that of you describing that because to me, so much of what I find a problem with the modern actors who've worked out is they make them get so big and then they're like, you're a sitcom dad. Uh-oh, your daughter's dating somebody you don't like. Right. But you're just a depressed businessman. How will you stop this? And it's like, no, that's John Cena. No, no. And, like, and way, I love John Cena. Not against him, but it's just yeah. weird casting. You're like, that's a guy who spends all his time at the gym. No I way am, is he also working in an office and getting like pecked on by his wife. I mean, that's my biggest complaint on all these How Did This Get Made movies. It's like, oh, he's just a sheriff in a small town. Well, if he's a sheriff in a small town, that guy's in the gym most of the time. He's catching yeah. no one. Um, <laughs> but, I will, but I will say that uh, The Rock, who I love, and I'm a huge fan of those movies, and I, and I get it. And even Stallone, who is a contemporary, don't have the mass or intimidation of Schwarzenegger. Like, no. he could, you know, I don't think I've ever seen them carry themselves in a way that is intimidating. And back in the day when Schwarzenegger first is coming out, you can do a scene where he is cutting off someone's head, having sex with a woman that is given to him in a cage, and then also having insane sex with a witch. Like He could walk this line of doing very brutal things. He could walk this line of doing very questionable things. He was... We didn't know. Like He felt to me part like an animal like what is it like he is beyond like we must give him space and room Stallone always I think felt like an actor who had muscles and I think that's because of the parts that he played but Schwarzenegger comes in much more as like a blunt object that is going to fuck up normal life and 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 you know there's something about that like it's not even his dimensions although his dimensions are crazy I mean at Mm -hmm. his peak he had I think a 57 inch chest a 57 inch I remember when chest. I got that. It's a, I, when like, I had that. I want to put felt, my fingers out to however big that even is. I can't even understand a 57 inch No, you know what it is, chest. Amy? To me, it's like when you get to 55, it, that's where it's the <laughs> hardest. Going from 55 to 57 is hard. Getting yeah. to 50 is always easy. Uh, and I'll tell you, honestly, it's, it's just, it's a shirt issue for uh, me. I, I always, yeah, well, I couldn't get the shirts that I like. I like fun, like kind of graphic tees and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was a pain. If I go into like a sporting event, you know, they have the triple XL, so I, that would fit. But yeah. Uh, you know, it was tricky. But then it's like you get that on your chest, but then you don't get to show off your waist. I mean, he had a I mean, 31 yeah. inch waist on a 57 inch chest. Wow. And, and wow. that's just he looks huge in this movie. This is him smaller than what he usually was. He lost 30 pounds to play Conan because he was like, I, I, it probably doesn't look right for me to be as big as I usually am because that just looks completely inhuman. I should downsize. So he downsizes 30 pounds to the Conan that we see in this movie. And what's interesting going back and looking at his biography of this time period is it's weird. Like we grew up in a post-Schwarzenegger world, right? Like I've never known Mm -hmm. a world where there wasn't a Schwarzenegger being famous. When he becomes famous, he looks so unusual and freakish is the word that people use about him at the time. Like he feels like a freak because we're not used to seeing people with his dimensions. Like bodybuilding back then was seen as like just this narcissistic sport. Now, like everybody's pumping iron. Like there's a lady I was watching on Instagram who's like, I'm 57 and all I do is lift weights to be ripped. I'm like, yeah. But like in his time, he would say that he would go to restaurants like in the 60s and 70s and people would treat him like a freak. They'd be like, look at that weirdo walking into this building. And he himself is the person who kind of 
not normalizes looking like Schwarzenegger, but talks about it in a, in a way of where people start to understand. Like he writes that book, Pumping Iron. Then he does the documentary, Pumping Iron, which plays can, you know, and like- And which people, is a great documentary. It really a is a documentary. great documentary. Like yeah. it's not, it, it, like I, I think that if you are hesitant to watch it, it works very much as a just great piece of history and and really fascinating about the competitive nature of that sport and what it takes to be like quote unquote a winner. I mean, he is a dick. Yeah. It is not a it is not a flattering portrayal of Schwarzenegger. You it admire him, but you don't like him. You like no. Lou Ferrigno. Lou Ferrigno is the heart of that movie. He is. And Schwarzenegger, though, you can't resist his charisma. Like this is just him in that in Pumping Iron talking about the pump itself, the feeling he gets when he pumps his oh. muscles. The greatest feeling you can get in a gym or the most satisfying feeling you can get in the gym is the pump. Let's say you train your biceps, blood is rushing into your muscles and that's what we call the pump. Your muscles get a really tight feeling, like your skin is going to explode any minute. You know, it's really tight. It's like somebody blowing air into, into your muscle. It just blows up and it feels different. It feels fantastic. It's as satisfying to me as uh, coming is, you know, as uh, having sex with a woman and coming. So can you believe how much I am in heaven? I'm like uh, getting the feeling of coming in the gym, I'm getting the feeling of coming at home, I'm getting the feeling of coming backstage when I pump up, when I pose out in front of 5,000 people, I get the same feeling. So I'm coming day and night. I mean, it's terrific, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Amy, one of the best moments uh, ever on film, but there is something about the joy yeah. and how he describes that. It, 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 yeah, it, like Richard Schickel, a critic that we talk about a lot on the show because he's got a lot of opinions. He walked out of Pumping Iron and he was like, this Schwarzenegger guy, he, quote, exudes the sort of easy confidence of a man who has always known he will be a star. Yeah, well, and that and that sometimes can get you to that next level, like... I want to go back to Frank Fazetta just for a second because I know it's not directly involved, but, you know, he is doing these amazing drawings and paintings, these epic, you know, if you aren't familiar, you you are familiar with them because, it, like, think about heavy metal, right? Like, that that yeah. is Frank Fazetta. I think about, if you think about any drawn images of Conan, that is Frank Fazetta. Like, he is truly someone who... I think brought to life this age, when we think about this kind of fantasy movie, giant snakes, women in like these very, like almost bikinis, but bikinis of the like time. Chain mail. Yeah. Chain mail. My dear skin bikini. I mean, my and dream you, is to like commission an oil painting of me as a Frazetta with like my crazy looking gray kitten next to me looking uh, like savage. Talk to Kim Troxel. She'll be able to do it. Uh, <laughs> but there is something about seeing that there is only one person to embody that, you know, and, and at this time we're talking about 1982, you know, Superman, like Christopher Reeve is a in shape guy, but he's yeah. not like, I have pecs out to here. He's not, you know, he's no, not he's like, I go jogging and live yes. a little bit guy. He's like, he's like, my dad had that kind of body, you know, yeah. it's like, a, it's a very, no, my dad was not Christopher Reeve level, but that kind of eighties athletic dad body. Yeah, and and this and Frank Fazetta created this world, and to know that like you could put Schwarzenegger in it, all of a sudden, I think makes this movie 
You know, this movie in many ways is an exploitation film. I think it like it shares DNA with Night of the Living Dead. It's it's gritty, it's dirty, it's violent, it's it's something different. It, it is very different than Tootsie, right? Like if you're going to go see that, you know, and I think there's something in the consciousness of moviegoers when you see something so different it's so exciting it's like oh we can do this like we can it it, it attacks a primal instinct because not to say like oh we like to see characters behaving badly but there's something about characters that have no their their will is just to live and they will do anything to live right there's like there's something engaging about that and and we want that i think every now and then we want to we just want that gritty kind of b movie and that's what what's happening here cuz this is a b movie that just pops yeah it feels like it's a b movie with like a movie aspirations or artists making it they're like yeah we're making a b movie but i have a lot of things i want to say in this right. you know like like Oliver Stone. I mean, to go back to him and like, there's a lot of arguments, I think, back and forth. Like even Matt Zuller Sites gets into it in his like recent Oliver Stone book. Oliver Stone is like kind of saying that he feels like Dino De Laurentiis and, and um, Milius kind of ruined everything that he was really going for in this movie. But like his ambitions, Oliver Stone, is he saw Conan as something that could have been like a James Bond kind of franchise that just goes and goes and goes and goes through the well, ages. Well, it does go in the comics. I mean, these comics yeah. have been running and they continue to run and they're great comics. For sure. And he also thought it could be one of his ideas that they decided not to go with. And I think this was smart is he wanted it to be like Planet of the Apesy. He thought he could set it mm. in the future. In his script, there's a little bit where you were going to like kind of stumble across a movie poster in the dirt. So he, he was going to take it in more of like a Mad Max rain, which I think maybe I'm just sick of like a futuristic post-apocalyptic thing. I'm glad it's Me not. Too, in, I'm yeah. glad it's kind of past. But I like I also, a world in which we don't even understand. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like we are looking at this tree of death or this wheel of pain. I like that. Yeah. It, like, everything's it, got its own mindset, right? Yeah. And like its own world and languages and tribes. It's like completely foreign to us. And like, but I do think if you look at this movie and squint, I think you see the Oliver Stone in this idea of like, you look at the movies he'll go on to make, Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. He makes movies about what happens to young men who grow up or are forced into a world of violence, right? Like, how does a young man get shaped when he's forced into a world well, that only exists Well, that's the Vietnam, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I think, like, he felt like he, like he really understood it. And I think he always felt like Milius was a faker. But, like, that, I feel like if you squint at this movie, you see the future of what Stone's going to try to talk about. Because, like— He's we, just a child— who is pulled yeah. into something he doesn't understand and forced to fight in something that he has no stake in. And then because he's forced to fight, then he is left as this like beast. He has his freedom, but like, where does he fit in and, and what does he want? And it's, and it's, there is such, there's such a story there of, this is the time where we're having our Rambos. This is our time yeah. where we're having these stories where it is like, it is about being forced into violence. Like there's nothing about that character that isn't made to be. Yeah, he is a, he yeah. is like he is being told how to protect, but he watches his mother get her head chopped off in the first couple of minutes of the movie, which I had to rewind. I was like, wait, did I just see that? Like, yeah. see, like that is a bold, crazy move. And I think you yeah. know, a lot of people and that like, scene used to be extra even gory. There was like a longer oh, wow. shot of her like head kind of moving its lips, and I, they made them cut it because they're like, that's just way too much. 
Uh, By the way, yeah. like small detour about that actress who plays his mom. Her name was Nadiuska. She was this like Russian Polish uh, like actress who came to Spain when she was nineteen, and she winds up making. 20 films in three years. She was just like huge out of the box. She was kind of like the Russian, Polish, Spanish, Sophia Loren was how oh, wow. she was posed. I mean, 20 films in three years. For a moment, she became like the highest grossing performer in Spain, which is where they shot this film. Um, but what happens to her is like everything she invests in and she invests in like frozen meat exportation, jewelry design. She opens a restaurant, goes under. Um, and because she had so much mental pressure about what was going to happen in her career when she was no longer considered like the sexiest actress, um, she starts to have kind of mental breakdown. She's diagnosed with schizophrenia. And a few decades later, she's rediscovered sleeping in the entrance of a movie theater as a, a unhoused and kind of having a break. And they've just put her into a psychiatric hospital and she's still there, still alive. But wow. that is the story of, um, there's a tragedy behind the actress who plays Conan's mom and gets her head cut off. Wow, you know, this is so interesting. And this movie, just as far as casting is concerned, really ran the gamut of who they wanted. And, and there's a lot of versions of this movie that we could have seen, some which I think are incredibly interesting. Obviously, Conan always was going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I think I'm saying it Conan like Conan O'Brien, and I apologize, Conan. Um Conan, Conan, Conan. Conan. Uh, But Sean Connery. I don't really know Conan O'Brien. Was he named after Conan? Conan? No, I think that's just an Irish name. It's Irish. Yeah, I don't think they named him after Conan. Oh, so Conan's Irish? Conan is Irish? If you are interested in the origin of Conan's name, it's a a Celtic name that means a little wolf. Uh, So I don't think he was named after the barbarian. Uh, But (laughs) Little wolf uh, is a really cute name. I like that too. I mean... But again, just to go back to the casting, there were some casting choices that I was really excited by. For example, Sean Connery was considered to be the role of Thulsa Doom, uh, the role that went to James Earl Jones. And I could see him doing that post Zardoz. There's an energy there I could see. Uh, they also wanted uh, John Doe Baker or Nick Nolte to be Conan's dad. Uh, you know, there were some interesting choices. And John Huston, our favorite John Huston, for the role of King Osric. So there's a lot of interesting, bigger name people, but none of those people really said yes, besides James Earl Jones. Uh, And you get, I think, a better movie because there isn't much uh, facial recognition. You're like, cool. Like it it almost immerses you more in this world because you don't go, it it doesn't feel like stunt casting. Yeah, although James Earl Jones and that haircut, poor wig. Poor wig. I feel so sorry oh, for James boy. Earl Jones having to wear that wig. That is a rough. I that, mean, when James Earl Jones turns into the snake, I, I almost lost my shit. Yeah. I was like, this is why I did not remember. I did not. I don't think I've ever seen it. But I oh, do want And he's so mad when his snake gets killed. Oh, yeah. Oh. Now you understand why. Greg Saw says that you gave it to a girl. Probably for a mere night's pleasure. What a loss. People have no grasp of what they do. You broke into my house, stole my property, murdered my servants and my pets, and that is what grieves me the most. Wait, you mean why, like, was that uh, one of his friends or something? Like a fellow I think it was, You think it was a human he knew who became... It could have been his girlfriend. We don't know. Oh, I mean, it... 
he plays it like a snake. Like once you know he's a snake, then yes. you sort of see the way he moves and the way he stares at people with those cold eyes. You're like, oh, good he job, is, James Earl Jones. But it, I like a James Earl Jones performance like this. He He's so dignified to see him in a role like this is I mean, I think he's dignified now. Uh, but back then, he's done a bunch of really interesting movies like of this nature, too. Which yeah. I Yeah. Whenever he pops up, I'm a fan. But it is funny, like hearing him give that speech at the end when he is telling Conan, you can't kill me. I shaped you through all this all of this yeah. pain. I am the pain that shaped you into the guy that you are. And he says, like, I am your father. And for him to be doing that right when Empire Strikes is coming out, I'm like, <gasps> my child. You have come to me, my son. For who now is your father if it is not me? Who gave you the will to live? I am the wellspring from which you flow. When I am gone, you will have never been. What will your world be? without me. I found that this movie actually had a lot of similarities to Star Wars like that, like this idea of like breaking into the castles and, you know, there, or I guess what I should say is this movie is a serial like Star Wars has elements of those serial things that this is what, you know, this is what Spielberg and Lucas are playing around with the same thing. And one is a much more elevated version of sci-fi fantasy. And one is much more of the down and dirty version of it, uh, which I just watching it, you could see like just little, little details. It's, it's all the hero's journey, but it's interesting how two different people attack it. I will also say that in a way, it's kind of not that much different from our filmmakers still making Batman movies. Like they're like, there's a way of not wanting to let go of your childhood. You are going to break down this Batman thing so much. I'm just mad about it. But like, I mean, the producer, the other producer, Ed Pressman, besides Zeno De Laurentiis, who's like, he's the one who first had the idea to do a Conan movie. And he comes up with this idea before Star Wars. It just takes so long to get it made. He's a guy with, I think, just fun taste. Like, he also produced Badlands and Phantom of the Paradise. He's the one who got Arnold on board. Um, he convinced, he, like, Was takes Arnie out. Was it hard Arnie to get Arnold on board? Well, he takes Arnie out for, like, lunch. They went to some health food restaurant on the Sunset yeah. Strip. And Arnie was like, all I get is, like, producers being like, I'm going to make you a star baby. So I think he wasn't sure if this guy was for real for a very got long it. time. But, but yeah, they all grew up reading these like original books, which we should talk about for a second. I mean, well, yeah, and I do want to talk about this because this Conan is not really Conan. Like the Conan books are are a different character. This character is much closer to Cull the Conqueror, which is a uh, a character an Atlantean who was put yeah. into slavery and fought out. So it's written interesting by the that, same like, guy. Written by the same guy, yeah. And and they kind of mixed and matched some details. I think that we assume that Conan was someone who was put into slavery and fought his way out through being a gladiator, but... They gave him Ben-Hur, basically. They gave yes. him the Ben-Hur backstory. Because Conan was just a character who left home for adventure. Yeah. Right? And, 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 they, and I guess maybe Conan has more name recognition than Cull the Conqueror, the Atlantean Cull. Uh, but it, this is... You know, I thought that was really interesting in my research because I I didn't realize how how different these two characters are and how much they blended. And obviously, right, they are done by the same person, but uh, truly but kind yeah. of a yeah a blending. Yeah, and by the way, this person uh, who wrote both of those, Robert E. Howard, um, he started publishing Conan stories all the way back in 1932. Which, by the way, Robert E. Howard. Same age as William Stieg, who wrote Shrek. 
Same age, same age, wow. but they seem to like exist in just radically different times. You know, when people are like, oh, do you realize that Anne Frank and Martin Luther King would have been the same age? And you're like, what? Kind of the same thing here. Robert E. Howard, same age as William Stieg, who lives to see a Shrek movie. Uh, Robert E. Howard dies um, when he is 30. He was like this like loner guy who was um, bullied a lot when he was a kid until he got buff. He basically was that comic book ad, but he really his like closest friend was his mom. And when he was 30 years old, his mom went into a coma. It didn't seem like she was going to come out. So when he heard that, he just went home and he immediately shot himself. And then she died the next day. So he dies in the 30s and doesn't live to see any of this. Doesn't live to see like the Frank Rosetta paperbacks get reissued in the 60s that really reinvigorate Conan. And they give this new look to him. His Conan didn't look so buff when he would have illustrations. And he doesn't live to see any of this. Like he doesn't know what happens to his Conan. So interesting. And I, I think there's so many subversive themes in this movie. And I want to talk to you about this idea. And it, I know it probably is funny to talk about the arc of Conan, but this idea that like when we first meet him, he is told like the way of the steel, like yeah. that, you know, this idea that the steel, like that the weapon makes the man. And then later in the film, when the weapon is broken, he realizes that the the man makes the man. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and maybe also going to what you were saying about the anti-war nature of this film, there's something really powerful about that. It's like, you are not a tool. You are not an instrument. You are a, a human being. And this glorification of the sword means nothing because you are the person who wields it can use it for good, can use it for bad, can use it to save themselves or others. But it has to be from the hand that uses it, not the steel is nothing without the person wielding it. Yeah. I mean, when we contrast this to something like the Green Knight, right? Radically Mm -hmm. different. I mean, on the surface, they're both stories about like men who set out to slay someone or be slain, you know, men who set out for this great conflict. But the Green Knight is all about this cultural duty and this pressure around Mm -hmm. him to behave, to be a hero. And Conan is more about a guy realizing that the culture he's grown up in and the culture that's like rising, the snake cult culture, that culture itself, he's aware from the beginning that it's like something that hypnotizes people, that culture forces, forces people to destroy themselves. Like quite literally the way that, you know, James Earl Jones can look at his people and just say, you kill yourself for me. The riddle of steel. Yes. You know what it is, don't you, boy? Shall I tell you? It's the least I can do. Steel isn't strong, boy. Flesh is stronger. So if the Green Knight is all about how culture shapes you and the pressures to fit in, this is a movie about, like, Screw culture, screw religion. Every man has to be out in, it, in life for himself. You know, it, it's almost Ayn Randian in a weird way, or like the individual is the only thing that you can rely on. There's something just so, I find it like at once inspirational and so sort of cold and sad and depressing to be like, you have no community here. But if the community right. is going to pressure you to kill yourself like it does in The Green Knight, what kind of a good community is that? You know, I mean, but this is a man who like, he has his own religion. He believes in a God named Krum. The, probably the longest speech Schwarzenegger gives in this is he like finally gives a prayer to Krum right before the, the giant last battle. Yeah. And even in the speech, 
this prayer to the God that has like sort of shaped his life. One of the only things he like carries on from his dad. I love how he ends it. He's like, well, God, if you don't help me to hell with you, I'll just keep going it on my own. Like he, he is so forced to go it on his own. Crom, I've never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we fought or why we died. No. All that matters is that two stood against many. That's what's important. Yeah, I mean, and that is, it's interesting to feel like there is this belief in yourself, but a higher power and this idea of like the the underworld and that the underworld is always trying to get you. I mean, Denzel Washington said it best, you know, uh, when you think you're at your highest moment, that's when the devil will kind of get you. And that's what happens here with, you know, Conan, like you have to always be on guard because not only are you dealing with outside sources, you're dealing in these worlds, you're dealing with the underworld can actually pull you down as well. I mean, there's like, you are fighting two levels of people at all times. You know, the the villain that you can actually fight and the villain that's trying to take your soul. Uh, it's an interesting thing to have spirituality in these movies. It is. And that's really what I love about Arnold's performance. I'm so derailed because like right at the beginning of us talking about this, I was like, there's the scene I keep thinking of. Haven't talked about it yet. But it's the scene where we watch him be forged to become a gladiator. Mm-hmm. And what I just adore about Arnold's performance is how in this montage from like his first fight to him becoming like this, like bringer of death to people, you see just in his eyes, this like absolute terror and confusion. Like, why is anybody trying to hurt me? What is even happening? The the sounds he makes in that very first fight. Those are heartbreaking sounds. Like, I feel like I see a lot of dull action movies that's like, I'm a tough guy and I'm a tough guy and I'm going to keep being tough. To see a man this big feel so hurt and injured when he realizes the world could hurt him, that people want to not just like enslave him, but that people are after him to kill him and he has to kill to survive. Like, I think Schwarzenegger brings a lot of like animal heart to that scene. And then it's really believable to me how you hear the narrator start to talk about pain turning him into a man who just doesn't care about life or death anymore. He did not care anymore. Life and death. The same. Only that the crowd would be there to greet him with howls of lust and fury. That sequence, stunning. I just think that sequence is unbelievable. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
And it's interesting. We're going so deep on this movie. And there's a part of me when I was watching this is like, this is exquisite trash. I love it. I think it's fucking cool as shit, but it's like, no, it doesn't go to space. But I, I mean, also, I agree. I agree. Schickel called it a psychopathic Star Wars. But there is something about, and I've always talked to you about this, when we talk about this list, like, I like it reflecting, and I know I go back to this example all the time, like movies like The Room. Like, what? how can we say these are the best films if we don't even understand what, when a film doesn't work? Or how can we say this is, you know, like, is there, like... If I'm looking at something, I need to see both sides of it, right? Like I need like I, if you just show me white, I'll never know what black looks like. You know, so I need to see black and white. I need to see yin and yang. That's a different argument, but I'll just say that there is something here that is a little bit deeper and this character is deeper and I want to talk about like this idea of women in this movie, right? Because this is obviously a hyper masculine film and oftentimes you're looking at I think you're looking at women here to be saved. And in this film, with the exception of the princess, um, you know, he meets his match with another thief who is a, a woman. He also has, like I mentioned, that encounter with this witch who seemingly is very powerful that he throws into the fire. But we also have women getting their heads cut off. Like, there's something about this movie that feels like, tell me if I'm wrong and cut me off if I'm going down the wrong path. But there is something a little bit more equal about the characters in this film. Like he as Conan is as much undressed as the women in this film. Men suffer at the hands of women as much as uh, women suffer at the hands of men. Like there, there's, there's a little bit of a balance that I was surprised at. And yes, you're right. There are a lot of boobs in this movie, like a lot of boobs. Um, and I'm not saying this is like a feminist. This is, you know, people should be happy, but I was surprised at some choices that made it, or at least I looked at it and go, well, this is interesting, at least for for discussion. Yeah, you're, yeah, like it'd be hard for me to say this is a feminist movie. Yeah, I don't but think I it is. But I would say that there is, I think there's like a real power in the Sandel Bergman Valeria character. Yeah. That I really love. Like, I felt 90 different ways about this character watching this movie. I mean, my heart goes out to Sandel Bergman in that like, I don't think she is very good at delivering her lines. You know, she just talks sort of like a Californian sure. girl. But I think the way she carries herself and the way that character is written is incredible. I mean, she's a dancer. Like, she comes to this movie because Bob Fosse recommended her. She does a dance number and all that jazz. She's six feet tall. She does all of the sword training that Arnold does. She gets, like, ready to fight in this movie. And she, I think, plays this character as having a strength kind of like... Oh, now I'm going to sound crazy. Now, please let's bring it, bring it. Okay. You know how at the end of everything, everywhere, all at once, the, the dad, the Wayman character is like, I fight with love. Mm -hmm. She, she fight fights. Like she cuts off a lot of heads, yes. but she has this power in talking to him about how she loves him. And I appreciate that this isn't some sort of like fake bullshit romance, you know, like, you know how like in a, in Inception, you know, Dom Cobb is like, oh, we talked forever Dom about everything. Cobb. And you're like, yeah. I can't picture this couple talking about anything. You guys right. don't seem like you have anything in common. Here is an example of a couple who you barely see talk to each other either, but you don't feel like they have to. You feel like they get each other. The way they look at each other and the way they talk to each other, they're like kind of passion to be around each other. They play this love relationship on this kind of physical level that I find completely credible. And well, the way that yes. she loves him and the way that she protects and defends him. When she gives that speech where she says right here, 
I've never had so much as I have right now having you, having somebody that I love. I have never had so much as now. All my life I've been alone. Many times I face my death with no one to know. I would look into the huts and the tents of others in the coldest dark and I would see figures holding each other in the night. But I always pass by. You and I, we have warmth. That's so hard to find in this world. I mean, that's beautiful. To me, this is like an example of a film that operates on the level it's supposed to operate on exactly. I'm not being asked to buy a bullshit romance. I'm being asked to buy like this one. And I believe that character. I really believe her. Yes. I mean, watching their montage of them when they're like happy and hanging out, do they not just seem like the perfect paleo CrossFit dream couple? You know, they eat chicken and then they climb ropes. Like they just look like athletic jock couple goals. I, I went down like a, a little rabbit hole here. Um, because this coming out, like, as you mentioned, the era of Jane Fonda, the era of workout tapes, VHS tapes at the home. Of course, Soundell Bergman did an exercise tape. Oh, yes. Of course, it's on YouTube. Of course, I watched some of it. I sat on my couch and didn't go up and do anything, but I kind of wanted to get up and do something. I pulled a little clip. It's definitely worth checking out. This is a five minute workout, which uses all the parts of your body. It warms up and tones all of your muscles from your feet to your head and neck. It's a great way to start the day. It makes you feel alive and ready to take on any challenge. So put down that cup of coffee and get the kinks out of your bones and your blood going. You're talking about workout tapes. We talked about Jane Fonda's workout tape being out here. And I'm also now thinking about Jane Fonda doing Barbarella. And is Barbarella kind of like a Conan, a female Conan? I mean, in yeah, a way. Yeah, with a uh, lot of talking in about like sex and pleasure and decadence. Yeah. I don't, did you watch Pam and Tommy, that series? Uh, I watched a little bit of it. There's a really and great not, I didn't moment. I didn't check out I didn't check out yeah. because I wasn't interested. I just yeah. lost track of There's it. There's just yeah. too much to watch. There's a really great moment in episode three where um, the Pam character is asked by her agent, "What does she want to do with her life?" And mm-hmm. she just gives this beautiful little speech about how she wants to be like Jane Fonda and makes the most wonderful defense of it, like how to be a person who is who maybe is seen as a sex object comes out, also does serious work, also does a workout tape, gets to be a woman who gets to do everything she wants. It's like probably my favorite part of the series. It's wonderful. It's like, it made me be like, I want to do, gosh, what if we did like a whole series on Jane Fonda someday or something like that? I, really I would love it. Look, I, I will tell you this much. I, I'm not name dropping, but I know Jane. I work with Jane. Got arrested with Jane. I got arrested with Jane. She is one of, hands down, the coolest people I've ever met. And her passion and her taste, everything about her is just incredibly inspiring. Uh, and uh, I know she's not listening, so I don't have to say this. I'm just constantly in awe of where she puts her time, energy, and resources and and seemingly still has like a joy of doing what she's doing. Like there's no reason why she she doesn't have to do any of these things, but she... Like, it purely comes from a place of joy, and it's so uh, really inspiring. Oh, I love that. Yeah. She inspires me, too. I, you can make a lot of arguments against what we're saying, but I also wanted to say that, like, she brings him back from the dead. Like, yeah. she brings him back from the dead. Not only does she bring him back from the dead, but she exists 
through death and saves him. She is his savior. She is so powerful that she transcends death. I do think that that is a very strong female character that I am surprised to see represented in that way. I think that she is drawn well. And yes, you're right. Maybe the acting is whatever. But at least from a story point of view, this is a meaty role. I agree. I mean, I'm watching this movie and on the one hand, I'm like, this is trash. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh, they said that when she's being burned at the pyre, that there's never flames there because of the wind. But look, there's so much fire and the gods respect her death. And they're like welcoming her into Valhalla. And I'm like, oh, you just you bought into the moral logic of this film. And I really did so strongly. And even that moment right afterwards where like his best friend, you know, um, Subotai, who's yeah, they took the name, by the way, is like inspired by um, Genghis Khan. His number one general was called Subutai. So that's where they took the name. Poor Gary Lopez. Like um, he was a surfer who did this part. He apparently did a, an okay job delivering his lines. But when it was over, they decided just to redub him with a different actor because they didn't think it was consistent enough, his voice, for some reason. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it's like like me. Like sometimes if I talk to somebody who's like British, I'll suddenly fake sound terribly British. Maybe he was sounding terribly Austrian being around Arnold. I have no idea. This is Well, all I mean, zone. look, this is a movie where they also wanted like uh, Arnold to do the voiceover. And they were like, you know what? Let's switch that up. Like, let's make yeah. uh, Mako do it. And Mako, also a great uh, character actor. Uh, you know, you might know him from Avatar, the animated Avatar. Uh, but also just, you know, I remember him from Sidekicks and like these like Jeff Speakman's perfect weapon. I remember, you know, like all these movies. Yeah. You know, he's around. He's around. Like he, I, I, mean, when he's I saw him, I was excited. He's best supporting actor, like early in his career for wow. a movie called Sand Pebbles, where he plays um, a Chinese soldier in World War II who like is beaten a lot. Um, and murder. Yeah, this is a guy who's like a legit actor. He founds, um, he helps co-found like a playhouse here called East West Players in Los Angeles, I think in the 60s. He's Japanese. East West Players is sort of just devoted to like really talented, like work highlighting Asian actors, Asian playwrights. Um, so he does so much here in LA theater. And I mean, do you know what his last role was though? What? His last role was um, voicing like a character with, I think, some elements of the wizard to him. Voicing Splinter in the animated 2017 oh, Ninja yes, Turtles. Uh, yeah. yeah, here's a clip. This is actually deleted from the movie, but this is this is him talking. Oh, buttercream frosting. Uh, no cake. Do you remember your last cholesterol tests? But, but, I, Donatello, I'm your master. Nice try, Sensei. You can still be my master, but with low cholesterol. This one's got a flower. <laughs> you have done yeah, well, Mako, my serious son. actor. I think the cast is really put together pretty well here. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this: Is this a movie that can truly only be made in this time period? Because I can't see, and I know, I know they tried it in 2011 with Jason Momoa, Conan. You know, again trying to make him. Uh, you know, an action star. I don't know if this movie works anymore. I don't know if we are interested in this. There was a time, Conan comes out, the sequels come out, then we have, you know, a period of time where we have the Xena, the warrior princess, and even Hercules, the show. And there was a moment where, like, this type of fantasy was really embraced. And I don't know if that can happen again. I don't know if it... If moralistically where we are as a society, we could get behind it because there isn't 
Even though Conan is viewed as being an incredibly smart, well-read person, we see him getting the knowledge because he's a fighter, like, it doesn't feel to me like we could go down this road anymore. Like, we don't want this kind of hero anymore. I mean, it's weird, right? I guess we'll see, because we have The Northman coming out, the new movie by Robert mm-hmm. Eggers, which I uh, watched The Northman before I watched Conan. So when I rewatched Conan, I was like, oh, that guy just took most of Conan and put it in this movie and then made it like historically accurate to the Viking era. So then he could be like, no, this is a serious film. But it's it's really just like serious Conan. Like, I'm well, not yeah. bullshit Conan, which, which is kind of the Conan that Milius wanted to make in the first place. Milius didn't want to use any of the fantasy elements. He was like, I don't want witches and giant serpents, but you you need them. Um, well, Northman is basically this, but without any of the magic and being like, our cups are real cups. Look, this is how it really was. I'm curious to see what DC does with Black Adam, which is like another kind of anti-hero character who's more powerful than Superman. And he has this energy, but it's, I don't think it's, I, I'm I'm talking about, can we see something this bare bones? Now, I'm sure people are screaming out, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. Yes. And I think Game of Thrones has, uh, has this, but it's elevated. And I'm talking about like something that's not elevated. Like, are we right. past, like, are we past this? Like, you know, Game of Thrones is, uh, regardless of where you fall on the ending, is an incredibly complex world and characters. And yes, there's violence and there's sex. And I think people really responded to that. But I wonder if you need to couch it and make it a little bit more, it's got to be more Lord of the Rings. It's got to be more Game of Thrones. So we feel like we're in a world less of just cool shit, sword fighting. Like, you know, can we not do that anymore? I don't, I know there's, it's not that much of a difference, but I feel like, you know, this is not Game of Thrones. This is not Lord of the Rings. It has to be elevated in this world. We can't just do... Yeah, something so stripped down. Yeah. I mean... I don't know. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just... Maybe I'm saying... Maybe I'm saying that, like, well, the elevation of it is Game of Thrones. Because we still are getting that kind of violence, but the characters seem... It's more Shakespearean, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the same thing with the Northmen. Like, the Northmen is also... It's like... It's Conan Hamlet. You know, right. Conan Hamlet with historically accurate cups, um, which I, I find a little, I don't know, I guess I'm finding the historical accuracy of it a little limiting. I like how there's like amazingly fun, beautiful costumes in something like the Green Knight that don't have to be completely accurate. I, I like I like fantasy in my fantasy. Well, I think what's so interesting about fantasy is, or this type of fantasy is this connection to pulp, right? This pulp sensibility and I think we try so hard now in features to round out everybody, make them all these three-dimensional characters. And there was something fun about, I remember as a kid, you know, I was very excited to read like these action hero books like Mac Bolin. You know, we talked about this with Ed Brubaker a little bit too. It's like you wanted these, I don't need to know that much about them. Like I just want them to do their, their business. And I think like we've elevated pulp so now pulp is no longer doesn't have the staples of why we like pulp it just becomes an elevated ver- like it takes the world but elevates it can we go back to some more bare bones stuff and and maybe the only place that happens is in horror in the sense that you can do something down and dirty you can do something cheap you can do something kind of crazy whether it is something like malignant or, or you know or just come out and you don't have to have 
any reasoning for things. It could just be weird and cool and and shocking. Right. I mean, part of what I'm thinking about now as we're talking about this is I think Mad Max itself is like a good example of where mm. pulp evolved. Yeah. Because the early Mad Maxes, especially the second one, I feel like has a lot in common with Conan. And they talk about the same things as the franchise goes on. I think Fury Road is still talking about like, what is the value of human life versus the value of like individual survival? Should you kill to get by? You know, do you need a higher belief? Like, what are we all here for? Are we here just to scrabble and fight for another day? Should we aspire to anything else or is that self-destructive? I, I think they're tangling with a lot of the same ideas, but Mad Max, of course, got like bigger and bigger and bigger in a way that Conan didn't. But what you're talking about in part two is something I'm really drawn to. Like, I think our characters now have way too much explanation and backstory in a way that makes me feel like producers just sitting around a room feeling like they have to have some sort of note. So everybody wants to say, I don't quite get why he does this. And then everybody has to like explain why the character does it. And then I you get remember all these flashbacks I was, in a, and I hate I was that. in a writer's room, uh, a punch up room for a true story. And we were sitting around the table and someone said, well, why does it was it one of the executives? Well, why does this character do this? And we're like, well, the character does it because of X and Y. Like, but we need more there. And it's like, but, but it, like, it's not believable. It's like, well, it happened, though. It happened. Like, why, yeah. like, why, like, why are we, inve- like, like, certain things just happen. And, like, you, there doesn't need to be, like, a whole backstory for one choice. Sometimes it is just you get caught up in the moment. But I was laughing so hard going, like, why are we working so hard to justify a choice that is real. Like, you know, sometimes people just make shitty choices and we don't even, I don't think that we can exist in that anymore. You know, maybe it is based in me. That means that everything is everything. I don't know if that's always the best way to approach a story. You're right. I mean, that makes me think of something like the piano. Like that in a way, Conan has more in common with the piano than Conan does with like maybe modern Conan, which I haven't Mm -hmm. even seen. But like so many of the movies today are like, full of the backstory for no reason. Whereas the piano is all about, I'm watching this person make choices I don't quite understand why and what is happening. And when you withhold, you're sort of leaning forward. Like I want to figure you out, you know, like you get that audience interaction by not giving everybody all the answers. Yeah. I mean, look, and this is a a constant battle. We were talking about this idea uh, uh, with some friends the other day, like oftentimes you're asked in these pitch meetings, well, why now? Why now? And I think it's supposed to be like, well, why are you like, why are we telling this story in this moment? And I don't always think that you need a why now, because if you could look at Severance, like Severance is a show that everyone is talking about. Why now? Well, I would argue that in if you looked at it through that lens, it would make no sense. We've just spent two and a half years out of our offices. So why <laughs> do we need a thing about, oh, I need to separate my work life and my home? Like, it doesn't feel like it doesn't it doesn't things that we like don't have to answer questions about what we're living through. They just need to engage us. They need to like pull us into a world. We want to, I think to uh, what I think is what we're losing. And this is a, I know I'm going on a tangent and I'll stop, but is, no, but I love this tangent. Keep going, keep going, chase it down. <laughs> Pure escape. Yeah. That's why now, because I want to go on a journey. I don't need to be like reminded of something. I don't need to be, Oh, this resonates with me. I don't need to be like, well, socially this is going on. I'd like to see a take like this. Like, yes, there can be episodes of Star Trek, the old Star Trek, where it's like, wow, what a great idea. You're talking about racism with a character that has a half black face and a half white face. Really cool idea. Uh, But, you know, there can also just be an episode where he fights a Gorn. Like sometimes we just need those things that we're just like, 
Give me, just, yeah. yeah, throw me in. I just need that. Give me You're that. You're saying we don't need Trump in My Little Pony. I mean, I, I, I was going to bring that back to that, but you're, but but yes, you're right. To a certain extent, like we don't need everything to represent a larger thing. Sometimes pulp books are an escape. It's the way that, you know, we don't need to judge Conan next to on the waterfront. Like, you know, they don't need to like they don't need to be in conversation. You know, it's like they can't they just be a great escape. And, and can we just embrace a great escape without having to think too hard or come back and break it all down. Can't we just enjoy the ride? Yes, I would love that too. And I mean, these things work in cycles. If we start enjoying the ride for 15 years, then I'll be like, can't we have things that mean anything? Right. But right now, I just don't feel like we have a balance. I feel like everything has to mean so much and I'm bored. I'm bored of talking about it. I'm bored of thinking about it. And I think if... We really want to look at it in the way that we've been talking about it and going back to last week's episode about what's a kid's film, what's an adult film and all this sort of stuff. It's maybe that question is poisoning the well, right? Maybe that is just let people be weird and create their own thing. And I think, yeah. you know, that's Milius. That's what's happening in a lot of horror films. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. But it's just let's enjoy the ride like let's enjoy the ride and i think that that horror has a built-in genre where it's like okay if you're gonna get some cool kills we'll let you kind of do whatever like just make sure there's a kill here a kill here and a cool mask or, and you get or you know whatever it is um it's like gone are the days of the disposable movie and i think there i read this think piece which i thought was trash about did Netflix kill the action movie? No. If Ambulance was good, it wouldn't be a killed movie. It, like We have to like the things. I think people loved Extraction, and that was on Netflix, and that was great. But if there was a great action movie that people were engaged to see, people will go see it. It will. People will go see good yeah. shit. I've been um, trying to think about how you can make an action movie good again, because I've found myself so endlessly bored and not wanting to watch them lately. Mm. And it's because when I think of an action movie lately, I just think of, some guy in blue jeans and a t-shirt kind of unsmiling, beating up a bunch of people. And it's gotten so boring again. I mean, and if like you look, always I, we, defending a girl with barrel curls and too much lip gloss. And it's like, God, or it's uh, like Liam Neeson, doom and gloom. And it's like, fucking hell. We did a piece on my Twitch show where I just took every Liam Neeson poster from the last three years. And there's a lot of them. Oh yeah. And, uh, and just took out the title. There's nothing, there's nothing no. You can't tell the difference between any of them. It's all, no. you know, and I guess those are those movies. I have but, seen them all. I'm dying. Oh, my gosh. It's so wild. You know what we need, Paul? We just need some tactility in our action movies, right? I mean, is there anything cooler in this movie than A, Arnold Schwarzenegger's body, and B, stuff like when they go into the town and there's a huge pile of pigs? There's just a huge <laughs> pile of pigs? What was that? What's happening? I don't know. But I was like, those pigs are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do think that they this energy of like the way that the landscape is. And you can look on the Wikipedia page, the, it, the, some of the set photos, and there's a great documentary about the making of Conan. It, like there is something about just really interesting landscape. Like the it's not a big budget film, but you get the right backdrop, and man, alive, it really pops. Yeah, or even just people wearing actual snakes as necklaces. Oh my god. That's so cool. What a great special effect wearing a snake as a necklace. I was actually laughing because like um, James Earl Jones's minions, you know, they have those like terrible haircuts with the little bangs and the long hair. Yeah. And I was like, oh, they look like Monty Python. And then I was like, how perfect is it that they look like Monty Python and they're all wearing snakes? <laughs> 
Well, Amy, you know, we're talking about this movie and the cultural significance of it. And I like like I said, exquisite trash, but doesn't that deserve a place too? Isn't that part of the story that we tell? Isn't that a part of like our world? And aren't we rewarding visionary filmmakers and the tools that they have? Like, you know, I know I've railed on here like, oh, well, sometimes you just get caught in this thing where you can't do the cool thing. And, you know, but this is a low budget movie. I mean, so low budget that did you hear the story that the blood that they had was made in uh, was concentrated. You had to mix it with water to kind of get it loose and ready to go. But it was so cold where they were shooting that the that the water would freeze. So they started to mix it with vodka. So every time that they were like doing these scenes, they were just basically drinking and they would go back to the special Whoa. effects guy to get more blood because it was just getting a little bit like to keep them warm. Oh my God. I did not hear that. Oh, wow. But that's crazy. I mean, you know what I appreciate though, about that kind of like rough and tumble filmmaking is apparently Milius, who I'm, you know, not a big fan of. Definitely if you've heard like the Apocalypse Now episode, not a big fan of this guy. This is a guy who, you know, like in his interviews around the time, he would say like the only thing civilization has done is increase the body count when we fight each other. Like we're not more civilized. We're all just like animals. He said like, you know, if he was talking about Star Wars at one point, because you can't not talk about Star Wars. And he was saying his problem with the audience for Star Wars is that we just assume the rebels are the good guys. And that if he was in Star Wars, he would want to be working for Darth Vader. I mean, this is a guy who like you clearly hates hippies and gentleness so much that the bad guys, the death cult are like hippies. They're just like Manson family death cult hippies. Yeah, they very much are Manson family. I mean, it's wild. Very Manson family. That said, one of his directing flourishes that I do like is he would tell Arnold things like, get on this camel, and it would be Arnold's first time getting on a camel. And he'd be like, that's fine. It's also Conan's first time getting on a camel. So if you fall off the camel, we'll keep that take too. Just get on the camel. Like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be credible. I like that. If you fall off the camel, keep the camel. Conan hasn't been on a camel. Conan doesn't have to get on a camel perfectly. I think that that's great. And that's why, you know, maybe he punched that camel and that camel went down uh, from a real punch. I mean, I feel like they definitely knocked over a camel. That was not, that was not, it it feels like a camel was hurt in the making of this movie. Yeah, that's kind of the roughest 30 seconds of this movie to me is he punches a camel and then he sees a bunch of women. He's like, those sluts. You're like, woof. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's like the Conan uh, Vegas sequence there. That's a little that. Yeah, that I think that kind of (laughs) brings out those things that you don't like about Milius. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Milius is a guy who said in an interview selling his movie, quote, I have an absolute hatred for the human race. Ah. I mean, Milius said when he told Pauline Kale that he was going to make this movie, that Conan was his next film. He said she, quote, looked as if she had just swallowed some bad Mexican food. So he did not feel like the press was on his side, even though I think he tried to shape the end of this movie very much to be kind of like Apocalypse Now. You show up at this temple, there's a weird guy in charge, everybody's worshiping him. I think he was like, no, 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 take me seriously. I'm also the Apocalypse Now guy. Um, When it came out, I would say the reviews were mixed. This was one of those movies where this still happens today, a phenomenon where everybody decides that this is the movie it's okay making fun of, that they just want to like have a bunch of fun writing the most ridiculous movie review, getting in all the bad puns they've ever wanted to do. It. Some people admire it. Some people turn it into just like a giant punching bag. So the people who hated it had a ton of fun hating it. One of those was Vincent Camby from the New York Times. And this is what he wrote. Conan the Barbarian may make money but it will only be fully realized as a work of art when Woody Allen takes charge and dubs it into Icelandic. Then perhaps it will be the laugh riot it has every right to be, a sort of muscle-bound Nordic what's up tiger lily. 
As it now stands, the version that, uh, the version that opened yesterday at the Rivoli and other theaters is an extremely long, frequently incoherent, ineptly staged adventure fantasy set in a prehistoric past. One has the impression that it costs a lot of money, although not all of it is on the screen. One is never unaware that one is watching a lot of extras trot around Spain wearing goat-haired jogging shorts and horns on their hats. Though the landscapes are sometimes pretty, the images are as empty as the narrative, which, among other wrong things, begins on a fairly exciting note and then becomes progressively less suspenseful until it just sort of stops. This could be a film to be run backwards. As Conan, Mr. Schwarzenegger looks overdressed even when he is undressed, but then there is no way that he can unzip that overdeveloped physique and slip into something more comfortable. At his best, the actor appears to be good-humored. In moments of stress, as when he beheads Tulsa Doom, he looks petulant, as if someone had left chewing gum on his favorite barbell. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, but there is just this element of, is it just this like does it have to does it have to have this more weight uh you know the woody allen comparison is so weak but i i, I do believe it's like what mindset are you going into it with and i went in and i was like oh man this is what people are gonna be mad that we're doing this this is stupid and then i got into it it's and then i'm Oliver like oh Stone shit an apocalypse now i know and it's but you <laughs> get like it's, it's a funny way that it grows on you and yeah. i think you know our reaction from the people that listen to the show to shrek was a lot more negative than the reaction that we were doing Conan. And I was like, oh, you know what? There is something about a purely original take on a genre that can't be denied. So I am actually... Which is also Shrek. Al Pacino uh, uh, has a Shrek phone case. We did not talk about that. Of course, yes. Al Pacino said the movie changed his life. Or did he say that? I don't know. Maybe somebody said that. Uh, but I love that he has a Shrek phone. I think... I notice a lot of stuff on the Discord sometimes where people really get in each other's face. And I notice that sometimes when people come at me on Twitter as well, and it's not about me personally, it's not about politics, it's about movies. How dare you like this? Why are you liking this? Why can't we? You know, and I and I think that it's fun to be able to elevate certain films and give them some flowers that people dismiss only because this is a movie that's worth talking about. And I think maybe as we go forward, we should find some more of these outliers that are interesting and different and not the run of the mill. Like, is it a classic? Does it have all of these elements? You know, because I think we learn a lot from those films and it also, some of the things that they do actually start to paint the future because the fans of these movies start making these things and whether or not that's Spielberg and Lucas kind of watching the old school serials and making star Wars and Indiana Jones, you know, or, or even, you know, like these ideas start to invade our yeah. culture. I mean, Robert Rodriguez, he was a huge fan of Frazetta and I think has helped, you know, reward him. And the grindhouse nature that him and Quentin Tarantino like elevated and, you know, to varying degrees in that movie, uh, you know, in their grindhouse movie. But yeah. I do think it's like it's cool to to pay homage to every type of film. And this has actually opened my eyes a little bit more about the types of films that we should every now and then explore. I think you cannot deny the impact of Conan the Barbarian, not just in launching Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I think is the action hero that to me kind of defined the 80s and 90s, but in inspiring a bunch of people. I mean, the Northman even specifically said Conan the Barbarian is one of the films that inspired me to make this movie. I think we're I think we're, we get these resurrections every so often of somebody just watching something with this kind of like raw power to it. It's a messy, weird film. 
I don't love it, but I was surprised how much I enjoyed watching it. And two, uh, honestly, to Vincent Canby's point about how at the end of the movie, he cuts off Tulsa Doom's head and then looks petulant. I think that's very purposeful. Yeah. I think when he cuts off his head, he's like, well, this is everything I wanted. It's not even a big fight scene, right? He goes up to him. He's like, don't kill me. I'm your dad. And he cuts off his head anyways. And then it is kind of that like emptiness of the hero moment that I find really compelling. And then he just sits there because if he's lived for revenge, what has he lived for? He, what does he well, do? One of the most damning images of the entire movie is him sitting in that throne at the end. Does he look happy? I mean, it's it very similar to, to the Green Knight. Like, not You're right. That it's his, the same shot. It's it, it, in this moment of, well, he got, you know, he had a lot of adventures. And there's a part of me that goes, well, he bec- he went corporate, right? Like at the end, yeah. it's like, well, it looked like he had more fun out on the adventure trail than he did here. But like the weight of the king, that that idea is, it's a very powerful, amazingly cool image. But it's not a happy image. It's not a happy image. Yeah. Uh, you're right. I love that you're bringing it up. We're closing this series the way that it began. Green Knight opens up with an image of a king on a throne. This movie closes with it. And in both cases, did fantasy adventure give this person everything we wanted? Do we get what we want when we fantasize? Like, what are what is the purpose of fantasy? You know, I, I love all of these questions that these movies rise. Well, Amy, it's been a pleasure. And I think in the general sense of what we're talking about here, I think that there's an interesting sidetrack we can take. Uh, before we get into our next series, why don't we kind of explore an artist that does make big choices? Maybe they don't always work, or maybe the body of work is a little all over the place. I think that after this conversation, I want to talk about someone who's been uh, very much in the zeitgeist in the last couple of uh, days, and that is Nicolas Cage. Ooh. And uh, I want to do it in in two parts, if you would, if you would humor me. Uh, I would love to just have a conversation with you about Nick Cage and the legacy of Nick Cage and what he does and why we are obsessed with him and, and what he is as an actor. And then maybe after that conversation, we can pick the Nick Cage movie that we want to focus on because we've done, we've done Raising Arizona, a uh, great Nick Cage movie, but I, I would like to kind of jump into one that's a, maybe more Nick Cagey. I mean, that's a Coen Brothers movie, like, and mm-hmm. Nick Cage is a star of it, but I want more of a Nick Cage experience because I do think he is somebody who goes by the beat of his own drum. And, uh, you know, I, I, w- I would be down to do that if you are into that before uh, the brand new Nick Cage movie actually comes out, uh, which I'm excited about. I accept this challenge. I will pick up this sword. Yes, let us do a Cage. All right, so we have a double episode coming up next week. We're going to talk about Cage, and then we are going to watch a Cage film. So get ready to... Go to the cage. doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. 
Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.